Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Finance Minister Christy Freeland warns Canadians of even worse days ahead as the economy shows signs of weakness with rising interest rates. How worried should we be? Enbridge has once again hiked their gas rates, and it could cost us double last year's winter bills. That's not an encouraging sign. And why was Liz Truss's tenure so short in the UK? And what happens now? Well, we'll talk about that too. It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Inflation numbers down minimally, but uh, not much of an impact on our everyday lives. Global Sandy Salerno has some details for us. Canada's annual inflation rate came down a notch to 6.9% in September. It was 7% in August. Economists thought the drop we would see today would be a bit bigger, mostly driven by lower gas prices and the lower cost of housing. Now, while those declined from a month prior, groceries just kept soaring, with prices jumping 11.4% compared with a year ago. That's the fastest rise since August of 1981. With inflation still running well above its 2% target, the Bank of Canada is expected to deliver another interest rate hike next week, making it the sixth consecutive increase this year. Sandy Salerno, Global News. So uh, what's going to be happening going down the road? The Bank of Canada says we're staying the course here, which means more interest rates. Uh, Even yesterday, though, the uh, Finance Minister and Deputy Prime Minister, Christian Freeland, uh, has uh, told us that uh, it's going to be pretty rough. Uh, the quote was, there are going to be difficult days ahead. So what does that mean? Well, let's ask our next guest. Marvin Ryder is a professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University in Hamilton. Uh, Marvin, pleasure to have you back in the program. Thanks for joining us today. Glad to be with you, Bill. I, I feel like I'm uh, sitting in the doctor's office here after we're looking at results. Uh, how bad is it going to get, Marvin? <laughs> well, can I say that if I'm the finance minister... My job is to uh, prepare for the worst, but hope for the best. And I think this is what Christia Freeland was doing this week with her announcement. It's a bit like, Bill, if I tell you that there's a terrible, terrible, terrible storm coming, and it's just only one terrible, then you're going to say, oh, that wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. But if I don't tell you up front that it's going to be really bad, then you're going to say, oh, that was just awful. And I think that's what she's doing. Certainly the year that has passed, the previous nine months of this year, have not been happy months. We've been seeing high inflation. We've seen prime interest rates go from a quarter of a percent to three and a quarter percent. So there's been lots of turbulence in the past. And basically what she's telling you is it's not over. Stay buckled up. We're hitting more turbulence ahead. Now, to be candid, I'm not sure it's as bad as she is painting. Let me give you one example. Uh, Yes, I think it is likely in 2023 that we will fall into what I would call a technical recession, meaning that we will have two quarters in which the economy shrinks very marginally. But rather than feeling like a normal recession uh, where there's lots of unemployment, I would remind the finance minister that uh, we have a million jobs in this country, a million jobs in this country that are unfilled at the moment. So if some companies do hit some turbulence and they do have to lay some people off or heaven forbid, terminate them all together. There are lots of other jobs out there at the moment, which I think is going to soften the blow of any recession. But it is her job to warn us, prepare us for the worst, and she's doing a great job of it. But there are benchmarks, and I, I understand st- from a statistical standpoint uh, that, yeah, okay, infl- the unemployment, which is at a low time low, may not be at the all-time low, but there's, there's still jobs, as you mentioned. 
But she's also talking about the the, the cost, uh, I guess, to us individually. Uh, mortgage rates are going to continue to go up, and that's going to make housing unaffordable for some people. Some people may end up having to sell their houses because they can't make mortgage payments anymore. So there's there's a human cost to this too, which I, I assume she's factoring in. Yeah, I think she is, Bill. But again, I would caution people not to read too much into all this. Let me try to explain again. So let's suppose interest rates go up again next week, next Wednesday. Suppose the Bank of Canada raises them another half a percent to 3.75%. For sure, if I am borrowing to finance a mortgage, then my rate is going to be higher. But if you're already in a fixed mortgage, or even if you're in a variable mortgage, not much is actually going to change. Now, the percentage of money that you're spending that goes towards interest is going to go up, and the amount you're putting towards principal is going to go down. And when you go to refinance in three, four, five years, yes, you're going to have to deal with it. But also in three, four, five years, interest rates may be different again. So this is really only affecting the people who need to finance right now, right today. If you're already in a, a multi-year mortgage, it doesn't really have any impact on you until you go to refinance. Now, I'm not trying to minimize this. Yes, it's been a gigantic jump in interest rates this year. We are still more or less at the typical rate for the last 150 years. Um, I can't speak for you, Bill, but I once had to finance a mortgage at 11 and a quarter percent when I was trying to get into the market and I survived. I got through it. It didn't stay up there forever. So I think we have gotten so addicted to some of these low interest rates. It feels like Armageddon when in fact, all that's really happening is interest rates are getting back to the more typical levels that we've seen over the last century. Um, I, again, I'm not trying to minimize this. If you're one of the people in those squeeze, I, I feel for you. I think the bigger problem here is not the interest rates. I think those people who will face those mortgages, banks will help them. Banks don't want those properties back. They don't want you to be forced to sell your house. But I am concerned still about inflation. You noted earlier that inflation dropped a whopping 0.1% from 7% to 6.9% in the month of September. I had been hoping for a bigger drop maybe something in the range of six and a half percent. So it tells us that again, this high inflation, which everybody feels, not just people who have a mortgage or are trying to buy a house, but everybody feels these high rates of inflation, specifically around food as we head towards the holiday season, we've got to bring those down. And so I, I think again, she's warning that we're going to have to do some more pain to get those numbers down to something reasonable as we head into 2023. Is this also, do you think, Marvin, an attempt to manage our expectations? Because there was a period, I guess it was about four or five weeks ago, uh, when there was a significant drop in, in, in the inflation rate and the price of gasoline went down. And, and I heard from a lot of people uh, that said, hey, this isn't going to be as long as everybody thought. We're, 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 I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. And uh, no, we can't. But, but uh, you know, you, you've mentioned on this program before that even some of the moves that the Bank of Canada is making right now are going to take maybe a year to, to fill her through the system and start to have an impact. So these aberrations that we've seen so far are not really as a result of this. There's other factors that are at play here, but is her message here? Look at, we're in this for the long run. Okay. This is not something that's going to be over by Christmas time. Yeah. In a way, this is a lot like COVID, you know, we, we spent a couple of months in lockdown and people said, Oh, the worst is past. Let's come, come back out of lockdown and there's sweetness and light. And people said, Whoa, 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 not so fast. This is going to take longer to go past. And I think the same is true with this. Yes, we've seen encouraging signs. We have seen inflation drop. Again, you were mentioning in your preamble about uh, England losing its uh, second prime minister of the year. Inflation in England is running in double digits. It's over 
And I was just in Scotland last week, and I can attest to the fact that it's it's running at 10%. So our 6.9% relatively looks better. But before you declare victory, it's still way too high. We want it to be in the range of 2 to 3%. And it's just not going down as fast as everybody would like. So again, I think her warning was to say to people, um, yes, things are getting a little better, but but stay, stay hunkered down. Still be smart with your decision making. If you don't have to buy some things, maybe don't buy them for the time being. If you want to think about your budget and take some steps, good. Do those sorts of things. We are not out of the woods just yet. And that's her job as finance minister. This is different than the prime minister. He's normally the person or the prime minister is the person to be the booster and the, the positive person. But the finance minister is supposed to be more prudent in what they're doing. And I think that's what she's telling us. The battle is not won. I'm glad you mentioned it. We are going to talk about ex-Prime Minister Truss from the UK in just a couple of minutes. And and that's this whole thing is, is really, I guess, the, the reason for her downfall, wasn't it, Marvin? I mean, you know, you look at the inflation rate that they've got over there, and she basically said, here's my economic plan to get us out of this. Uh, and her own party said, you're, you're living in a dream world. I mean, they wouldn't even impose this. With that message that's happened here, and I don't anticipate that, you know, that anybody's going to be asking Justin Trudeau to resign anytime soon, at least not, not in the Commons anyway, are they going to be moving more cautiously here? Because there's going to be a lot of pressure, as there was during the pandemic, for government assistance. You know, we just can't hack this anymore. We're going to need some help. I know I did. They did pass a bill this week to increase the, the GST rebates for a, per, a period of time anyway. But I got the feeling that, uh, that they don't want to go too deeply on down that road right now, simply because of the economic impact it could have. Yeah. So let's come at that in two ways, if I can, Bill. Uh, uh, Prime Minister Truss in England did a couple of things that were really quite bizarre in my mind, given the current economic climate. One of them was to move to reduce tax rates on the very rich. And this isn't new. Don, uh, Ronald Reagan said this over 40 years ago. He believed in what was called trickle-down economics. If I put more money in the pockets of the rich, they'll go out and spend it, and that'll be good for everybody. We've actually discovered that trickle-down economics don't really work. The rich appreciate having more money in their pocket, but they just invest it, buy more stocks and bonds. They don't exactly go out and hire more people. So I, I was bizarre that that is where she was going to, to come at things. Instead, the message from our prime minister and our finance minister, I think, is the more prudent one. Now, I realize that everybody, especially the quote-unquote middle class, would love to have some relief. But that would actually be pouring gasoline on this economic fire. We don't want to do that, but we don't want people to struggle at the bottom end. So you mentioned increasing the GST um, rebate for a period of time is also um, another bill I think has just been proved. I don't know if it's been signed yet around helping people in low incomes with some of their dental costs. It'll be targeted relief. We're going to see targeted relief over the next two, three, four months, but we're not going to see anything broad based. So Unfortunately, I guess I can say it like this. If you earn $100,000 a year, nobody is coming to send you a check. It's only for those people in the lowest lowest uh, percentiles of our income. They are going to be looking at something. So you've got that element of it. The other story, of course, is we're told anyway that uh, the deputy prime minister uh, had a meeting with her, some of her cabinet colleagues and basically said, don't come here asking for an increase in your budgets. Uh, so the, the fiscal responsibility seems to be the common thread here, because I think the prime minister's talked about that as well. So this is like uh, give and take, isn't it? I mean, you know, if a, if a defense department, for instance, says we want to do this, you basically have to say, OK, find the money somewhere within your own budget. Uh, so I, I guess th this is their attempt at tightening their, their own belts. Right. To say that a little differently, Bill, during the year of COVID, 
um, the our federal government ran a deficit of over three hundred uh, billion dollars. Well, that's just not sustainable. Now, the next year, uh, actually, the year that we we just wrapped up, they were thinking their deficit would be on the order of one hundred and twenty billion. Instead, it's going to be in just two digits, probably on the order of eighty billion. And in this current year, they were hoping for a deficit of maybe around. 40 to 50 billion, and they're trying to even bring that down from there. So the government is not interested in big spending projects at this point. Again, it's absolutely prudent, absolutely makes sense. We had to spend during one difficult time, but let's not make it worse at this time. So, um, and you've mentioned our federal prime minister and federal finance minister in Ontario quietly last Friday. They released their most recent fiscal results, and the fiscal results for Ontario say the budget's balanced. You know, here they were just two years ago running big deficits, and we're back to balance. So governments are are trying to get themselves in a better fiscal position. If they do need to do something, they'll have that ability to, but they're not they're not blabbing about it because it's been the benefit of a high inflation. Their revenues have gone up much more than they'd ever anticipated. And so they're they're going to use this for the time being to bring things back closer to court, uh, to to level uh, back to balance. But in terms of looking for some broad based program, I just don't see it out there. Little things, sure, but nothing big. I got about thirty seconds left, but on your point there, I, that's something I guess we tend to forget because uh, we're kind of looking at our own situations here. But when interest rates climb as they are now, uh, governments make more money, as, you know, because the tax we pay on gasoline or, or bread or whatever, whatever you, you want to call. Is a percentage of the cost, and if the cost goes up, then their revenues go up. In situations like that, Ontario, as you mentioned, benefited from this. Do you see much of an impact on the federal budget? That's a pretty huge deficit they're dealing with. Yeah, I mean, I don't. Again, I don't think the federal budget is going to be balanced for the current year. But in the first three months of this year, they actually did run a balanced budget, uh, and so we're going to see, I think, some surprising numbers when we get the midterm budget update. Probably in about three weeks' time, they always do this six months into a year to tell you how things are going and i'm sure it's going to be rosier than we thought and that's actually going to mean they'll be able to balance the federal books faster than everyone thought but but bill again you're absolutely right when uh int- when um, inflation is high they get more uh revenues and so they do want to fight it but maybe maybe they don't have the best incentive to fight it as hard as we'd like yeah, we're really bad. We feel badly that this is helping. Oh, put that money over there. Yeah, that money we just made. Put it in the corner there. We'll need that. Uh, we'll see what happens over the next couple of weeks. And as you say, we're a couple of weeks away from another Bank of Canada announcement, too. Marvin, as always, thank you for your perspective on this. Really appreciate the time today. Glad to be with you, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's snowing in parts of Ontario. It, that used to be, oh, man, oh, up in north, and yeah, that's not going to happen to us for a long time. Yeah, it is. Uh, I got my appointment to get the snow tires on next week, and uh, and I, with great trepidation, actually turned the furnace on a couple of days ago, and uh, that can be an expensive proposition these days, because as you know, uh, the cost of home heating fuel is going up. It's a crisis in, in Europe right now, but it's going to be a problem for a lot of people here, especially since uh, Enbridge has just announced that they're hiking gas prices again. Uh, what are we going to do about this? Well, there are options, and uh Our next guest uh, talked about one of those in a piece that uh, she wrote for the Toronto Star just a little while ago. Armin Yeltsin is uh, an economist and Atkinson Fellow of of the Future Workers, but she's also a contributing columnist uh, for the Torstar newspaper chain. And she's written an outstanding column that I think puts things into perspective and and gives the federal government uh, an opportunity to do something about the problems we're facing right now. Uh, Armin, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Thank you so much for the time today. Terrific to be with you, Bill. 
you uh, outlined, I think, very clearly the, the challenges that we're facing right now uh, with a, a number of people in this province. And, and invariably, uh, governments, uh, besides wringing their hands when we're faced with these sorts of things, figured the, the, the game plan here is always going to be, well, we're going to have to give them subsidies. Uh, you know, if gas is too high, if electricity is too high, we'll subsidize them, which is some people would suggest a Band-Aid solution that doesn't really do any good. What options do they have? Well, um, really, we have voluntary price caps, which we saw with Loblaws in their yeah. and their no-name products. You know that no company is going to kill themselves to help you. So uh, that's a little bit of an indication of, you know, what the uh, their ability to set prices is, um, and they're only promising it till till January the first, so till the end of the year. And and I know that there is some interest on the part of the federal finance minister, Christopher Freeland, to have more companies join in on that kind of voluntary price capping. So there is room for companies to say, we're not going to hike prices right now. They're not likely to do that because they also are hurting some companies are hurting some companies are doing really well and i want to get back to that in a second the second thing you can do is to regulate a price cap we don't have a great history of that in this country and that's what they're struggling with in europe the european model of dealing with uh, heating bills that have doubled and electricity bills that sometimes have gone up 10 times uh, in Europe. So you've got 27 members of the European Union who do not get along with one another, agreeing to windfall taxes, but not yet to price caps, because they're so difficult to do it in Canada. Our history of price caps with uh, wage and price controls in the 1970s ended up being a wage control rather than a price control, which is disastrous, because they're so hard to cap. And so the third uh, opportunity is to say, okay, some people are going to make a lot more money. We should tax it, tax those windfall profits, and then recycle the money to do the things that we need to do, like help people who are struggling to keep the lights on and making choices between heating and eating, and also to reduce our energy use. And that's, uh, or shift where our energy comes from. And that's precisely how Europe is using what they assume will be about $140 billion in uh, revenues from these excess profit taxes. And we should talk a little bit about how do you even define excess profits in capitalism? <laughs> well, that's in, it's in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? Uh, it is easy to say that. I mean, there are some schools of thought that say there is no such thing as excess profit. There's just profit and more profit. And that's the whole point of the game. But historically, we have defined some periods of profit as windfall, not because you were a good manager, not because you improved productivity or you did something particularly to improve your product line. It, it's just a gift that was given to you. And in this case, the gift is being given to you by global commodity prices for gas because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So anybody that has anything to do with energy is seeing a windfall profit. And that's precisely why Europe said, we need to capture some of this money. They've defined very clearly what they think is excess. What they think is excess is this year, if you earn 20% more than you did in the average of the last four years, you that and, and you earned more than a billion dollars, 
you will be 33% of that profit will be taxed. In Canada, we have taxed 100% of what we have defined as excess profits. It's usually in relationship to some average of, our, of the last few years. What is unusual right now is that we are including the last four years, which are two years where prices actually fell, 2020 and 2021 because of the pandemic, really tough years. So of course, profits are going to fall. But if you're defining the profit as being above a certain average for these last four years, you're still capturing the big fish. You're not touching the small players. You're capturing the big fish. And the, literally the nature of this profit is windfall. So why not harness some of it for the good of everybody? How is uh, this being received by the private sector? Uh, have, so <laughs> that's a great question. So I can't remember which company it was, whether it was Sunoco or Shell. As soon as Europe agreed to this, the CEO of Sunoco or Shell went to then Prime Minister Liz Truss in the UK and said, do this here. You must do this here. And she said, no. <laughs> so some companies, as some countries are saying, we will not tax windfall profits. Others are saying, darn right, we're going to tax them. Here, there hasn't been much discussion. Uh, Jagmeet Singh of the NDP has raised the possibility earlier, not specifically with oil and gas. Don't forget, oil and gas in this country has got, it's like the third rail of uh, politics uh, because of the National Energy Program in 1980, which caused all sorts of chaos uh, politically, where Alberta wanted to get out of the uh, Confederation because they felt that they were being exploited by Ottawa. Um, you know, if we had still a national energy program, we might not be in this pickle, but that's a different conversation. What is absolutely true is some of the East-West divisions in this country stem from 1980 when the national energy program was brought into place. And uh, that I, I think it's very difficult for any uh, any federal politician to risk walking into that buzzsaw because you know, like it's guaranteed, it's pre-scripted what's going to happen to you. You're going to get this whole Alberta wants to secede kind of noise and a lot of blowback that Ottawa's intervening too heavily. That seems to be the story of the day is that Ottawa's just too big a presence in our lives, which is a fascinating moment since they saved our bacon during the pandemic. Well, yeah, and, and that, that mindset's, of course, been rejuvenated now with their new premier you know, the last couple of days, who's made some rather incendiary remarks. Well, her proposed Sovereignty Act, I think, goes right down that road too, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think... Um, I think Danielle Smith, the new premier of Alberta, replacing Jason Kenney, but not elected as uh, the premier. Uh, I think Danielle Smith is Canada's Liz Truss, who is who until a few days ago was the darling of the libertarian movement in the United Kingdom, but got didn't didn't outlast a lettuce. <laughs> was put on display to see who was going to last longer, the lettuce or Liz Truss. And so maybe that will be the fate of Danielle Smith, but certainly her, um, her history and her rhetoric would indicate that she is going to fight Ottawa tooth and nail, whether they help her or not. Well, and to her, your point there, I mean, they did ask her just after she got sworn in, are you going to call a snap election? And she said, no, because I'd probably lose. So I, I think she knows <laughs> that she's on thin ice. Uh, and but there is going to be an election. I think it's next year in Alberta. So that will. I don't know if she's going to last forty-five days. I mean, but I mean, who knows what's going to happen? I don't <laughs> think everybody in that province uh, shares her her zest for uh, going head to head against Ottawa. But a lot of politicians out there have certainly made some hay from that because uh, they know that that's a wound that they can poke, and Alberta uh, Albertans respond to that. 
A hundred percent. And the federal uh, leader of the official opposition, Pierre Poilier, has made the a point that is made around the world by libertarians that inflation has been caused by government spending too much, which is, of course, not the case. But it is, a, a, you know, it comes out of a 1950s economics textbook. So if governments get too big, they can push prices up. That isn't what's happening right now, but it's an easy uh, page to pull from the economics playbook of the 1950s. And what's fascinating with the uh, leader of the official opposition is he'll say at one moment that the federal government is pouring gasoline on the fire of inflation. And literally 10 seconds after that initial speech that he gave, 10 seconds after he said that, he said that they weren't giving enough in the housing benefits. So which is it? You know, pick a lane. Is it too much or too little? Uh, So there's a lot of... uh, you can drive a convoy through some of the hypocrisy in some of these statements, <laughs> but know. you know it's 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 going to be a big fight as to what the federal government can do, and of course, people. I mean, especially the oil and gas industry will always resist more taxes. They will always say, "Don't tax me because I'm I won't be able to invest in the future." But meanwhile, we are pouring gasoline on the fire that is burning consumers. Uh, So we need to do something, I think, and governments need to be seen as doing something. By the way, in Ontario, because of Kathleen Wynne selling Ontario Hydro, at least 49% of it, Mm -hmm. uh, we have had price caps on electricity. And this year, Doug Ford's government, who did not get rid of those price caps, which are the subsidies you were talking about, this year for both businesses and residences, there's like nine different programs in the combination of them means that we taxpayers are spending $9 billion to keep each other happy so that our electricity prices don't come up. You know, people say it's Doug Ford doing it. It's us doing it. It's our revenues. So it's quite remarkable that, um, as you said earlier, the subsidies don't fix anything, but they are a great apology and people don't notice what would otherwise be happening to our electricity bills. So, you know, maybe subsidies are a way to go temporarily, Uh, because you wouldn't want to lift them now. It's just so miserable out there. Uh, But they are not cheap, and they fix nothing of the underlying problem. Let's talk about Ontario for a second and their perspective, if we could. I mean, as you mentioned, the government, especially over in the European Union right now, uh, reinvesting in other technologies to get us off of uh, fossil fuels, which is a a noble goal. Uh, Doug Ford, the first time he got elected, canceled most of those programs. Uh, you know, they were online and, and there was supposed to be funding for them. But uh, wind power, forget that. Solar power, uh, we're still kind of living in the, the 19th or 20th century in Ontario right now. Uh, and, and we're pretty much stuck. I, I mean, he's had this epiphany about electronic vehicles, and that's great. <laughs> uh, but that's not going to heat my house this winter. You're absolutely right. And, you know, I have almost next to no knowledge about how to deal with the transition that we clearly know that we need to make on how we generate energy and how we use energy, whether that's fossil fuels or hydroelectric power or nuclear power, we just need to change the way we do what we do. And there aren't a lot of incentives to do that here. I mean, frankly, to the contrary, we have a 10% reduction in gas tax, sorry, 10 cent per liter reduction in gas taxes in this province, which is maybe not politically a very smart move for them because you can't see it. You can't see that, that that it's Doug Ford's government that gave you 10 cents a liter and the price of gas has soared since he did that. 
and he's building, he's spending billions of dollars on building roads. So it's not exactly a let's be, let's figure out how to reduce use by, for example, working with the feds to have a high speed uh, train moving through the 401 corridor. I mean, there's so many things we could be doing, but they really have a fixation on cars and on buck a beer. <laughs> it's like frat boy well, and, government. And, and therein lies the problem. <laughs> and, and hey, I drive a car and, you know. Oh, so do I. And, and you know, I, I go up north a fair bit. I drive the car because there's no buses where I'm going. Uh, and, and so I understand that. And I get the idea about roads. But, you know, you, know, you just talked about the fact that the Ontario government actually has a surplus this year uh, because of all these taxes that have gone up. That was more money in their coffers. Uh, he hasn't announced where he's going to spend it. I mean, as you say, the European governments have already dedicated those this, this windfall tax to these technologies, to new technologies, and for relief for people that are going to be hard done by. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For all we know at this point, I mean, he's going to use that money there to go and build a couple of new highways. Well, he isn't has that, not isn't that true, funding. right? Like, there, there is, a, uh, at this point, with a majority government, there is no checks and balances in the system to urge them, but they are, uh, to give them credit, uh, they have flip-flopped a number of times on their positions, so they are yeah. open to great criticism, but it seems like we have to bellyache very loudly to get them to course correct. Um, and at the end of the day, there's some pretty fundamental things that they're not going to change their direction on, and I think you're right about roads and cars and that sort of thing being kind of part of their brand, uh, because there are so many people that are absolutely reliant on their cars, and because there are people just like them, just like these leaders that like to go up to the cottage. So like, you know, yeah. people relate to him and people relate to what he is offering. Uh, with, as I said earlier, it's like it, whether it's good for you or not, it's relatable. Well, and that's the point. And we talked about that after the last provincial election. Uh, you know, it's easy to throw Doug Ford under the bus and say you shouldn't be building highways, especially through you know sensitive lands like that. Uh, but And we were told that all those local councils where these roads were going to be built were totally opposed to this. And there was a, all sorts of fear. Every one of them elected conservative MPPs. Every area. Right. So right. That's what the he's, people responding. Want. Oh, uh, he's yeah. responding to what people are saying to him. You make a really good point, And I'm sorry, I was talking over you. I'm Armenian. Okay. That's how we do. <laughs> so <laughs> we talk over one another. <laughs> but uh, uh, you're I'm absolutely Irish. Right. We've mastered it. So. <laughs> Anyway, I, I completely agree with you. And it's really up to all of us to convince each other what it is that we want. I mean, yeah. it is a democracy. If that's what the majority of voters want, you either have to get more people out voting because that was an incredibly low turnout. Yeah. Or you have to get people that are voting to act. There needs to be some kind of a consensus in the direction we need to go. That's the nature of democracy. You know, you can say love it or leave it. But where are you going to go to? Uh, yeah, I mean, we've limited our options right now, too. I mean, we've got people from the GTA that are looking for places out in Nova Scotia right now. Uh, so you, we're stuck with what we've got here. But you're right. The only way the governments are going to respond is to public pressure. And and he, he has done that. And it, not often, but he has done that, as other yeah, yeah. elected officials have. So if we want something like this, we're going to have to make some noise about it. Uh, and I don't know if the windfall tax is, is the answer here either, but it's an option that at least they should be discussing here and seeing if it's going to be practical. And the problem I'm concerned about here, and you touched on this a couple of minutes ago, is that every time anybody, federal, in federal government, doesn't matter which political party it is, starts talking about doing something with the oil and gas industry, they push back and squeal and, and the government capitulates every time. I mean, they essentially let that yep. industry write the regulations for themselves. Yeah. 
Yep, that's true. I mean, it, that and that's true everywhere. I mean, we can blame yeah. the federal liberals, we can blame the provincial conservatives. It is true everywhere that money has got power, it's got muscle, and it's got ve- it's got the best minds it can harness to make the best arguments. So, you know, like Trump said, they've got the best words. <laughs> so, you know, I think it is really challenging. However, when the people want something, uh You know, politicians always try and get to the front of the parade. So if there is a parade towards something, they're going to do it. And I think the windfall tax idea is something that is a solution to what people have dubbed greedflation. And whether greedflation exists in grocery stores or in, in gas stations or wherever it is, you know, it is very difficult to measure what greedflation is like, but it is not difficult to measure windfall profits. And this is a this is a time when we have been saying repeatedly since February of 2020, we're all in this together. Well, we're in the storm together, but we're not in the same boat together. So if we want yeah. a little bit of help, this is the time to be helping one another out. And if a corporation says no to that, you have to wonder. It's very bad PR. So I think we have room to uh, put more pressure on for a little bit more help from the companies that absolutely have the resources to help a little bit more, at least temporarily. We did that during every war that we've been involved in, in Canada. In Second World War, we taxed windfall profits above a certain level at 100% and then gave those same companies a 20% tax credit when the war was over. There are ways of building in windfall profits where you get the measure that is timely, that is temporary, and that is targeted so that you're not hurting all business. You're just tapping into the profit of the biggest players and using that money, recycling that money immediately for the things that absolutely need doing right now. Uh, You can go to thestar.com to read the whole op-ed piece. It's uh, very insightful. Armin, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for this. My pleasure. Take care. Have a good weekend. You I mean, Yeltsin, an uh, economist, and uh, she's with the Atkinson Fellow on the Future of Workers. Uh, and also, of course, as we say, a contributing columnist to the Toronto Star. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Tumultuous times in the UK. We were just uh, a few minutes ago uh, trying to run down the uh, number of prime ministers over there. I mean, David Cameron was there and he resigned, of course, after the, uh, the Brexit vote. Uh, Elizabeth May came in. Uh, they she had a rocky road. She left. Boris Johnson. Well, we all know what Boris Johnson was like. Uh, and then, of course, Liz Truss uh, just forty five days ago, and she's resigned uh, because of the things that are going on. It's a short and bumpy ride for Liz Truss as the British PM, uh, who replaced Boris Johnson. Global's Crystal Gabansing is in London. Here's her report. Liz Truss took power, touting her bold economic plan to grow the economy. She leaves, admitting. She was ineffective. And we set out a vision for a low-tax, high-growth economy that would take advantage of the freedoms of Brexit. I recognise, though, given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. Her political downfall comes just six weeks after her government's mini-budget tanked markets. Featuring sweeping trickle-down tax reforms with breaks for the wealthy, it was pitched with little explanation as to how it would be financed. So there is the situation. And uh, and once again, they're going to try to choose a new leader. Uh, but we're told, at least at this point anyway, probably not going to be another general election, uh, which is interesting. 
Uh, to try to get some perspective on this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Peter McNally. Uh, professor McNally is a professor emeritus with the School of Information and the director of history with the McGill Project at McGill University. He's McGill's royal watcher. Uh, professor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Bill, great to be with you and your listeners. Uh, Peter, I gotta, I, I'm sure, given the situation over the last two weeks especially, uh, no real surprise. The, the pressure on trust to step aside was just immense, wasn't it? Well, uh, there are no surprises at one level, but at another level, it's pretty <laughs> shocking, isn't it? Uh, somebody yeah. who lasts in office for only 45 days, uh, the shortest uh, lived prime minister in British history. Uh, when I was in Britain just a few weeks ago, at the time of the Queen's coronation, um, you could tell there was uh, uncertainty, unease. Who was this woman? Nobody knew who she was. And then she was bringing forward these uh, quite remarkable uh, uh, um, financial plans. And you could tell there was an awful lot of unease right from the very beginning. What was she doing? Did she know what she was doing? And uh, the, the fact was is that uh, as soon as her uh, economic plan came out uh, last month, uh, there were problems with it. The Bank of England had to intervene to prevent the crash of the, of the British pound. There was this sense from the beginning that she was in, uh, doing something that was ideologically driven, but that was not based upon reality. Well, it, it seemed like a throwback to an awful lot of people, didn't it? I mean, the, the, when she started going through with some of these programs, uh, it, it smelled like and looked an awful lot like Reaganomics that, uh, that Ronald Reagan tried to do in the early 1980s, and, and that was a disaster. Well, that's right, but, but, uh, but, but uh, Reagan, uh, when he did what he did, uh, he at least had the strength of the American economy behind him. Yeah, the problem yeah. for Britain is, is, of course, that having left Brexit, uh, this uh, cut, off, cut it off from uh, easy access to its biggest uh, natural market. And uh, the, the British economy was, and then, of course, there was um, COVID. And the lockdown that our country and every other country in the world has suffered from. And so she was trying to bring in huge tax cuts, but without any indication of how this was going to be balanced by, uh, um, by, by spending cuts. And uh, so consequently, uh, the, the market uh, didn't give Britain, the British crown, the benefit of the doubt. And consequently, well, now she's out of office. But she was in cabinet. I mean, this is somebody who has some political experience. And uh, I, I saw one of the pundits, I think it was in the Times of London, wrote that uh, Boris Johnson had longer parties than her reign in, in 10 Downing Street. Uh, she just didn't, <laughs> uh, to use the, the colloquial phrase again, she, she couldn't read the room. As you said, no matter what her political ideology was, this was the wrong time and the wrong place to, to, to start doing some of these things. Well, I think you put your finger on it. It was the wrong time and the wrong place to do it. Uh, I, the thing is that the British uh, Conservative Party is so deeply divided and split amongst itself. And so you've got people within the British Labour Party who say, yeah, you know, you got to stick to the tried and true and set the centre, which frankly is where most of the voters are. But then you have also within the British Conservative Party, this very, very ra radical right wing crowd as well, too. They're against Brexit. Uh, they have all sorts of, um, of, of uh, economic policies in mind. 
And uh, it would appear that uh, the reason that um, that Truss won the leadership was because of her appeal to this uh, community. And then having gotten in office, she felt that she had no alternative but then to put in place this agenda. Well, we could see uh, the agenda hardly lasted 24 hours before she had to back away from it. And then she lost all credibility. She lost credibility with her right-wing supporters. She lost credibility with the center and her her moral authority to try to keep her cabinet together. And then she got rid of the finance minister, the minister of the exchequer, a number of other cabinet ministers uh, resigned on her. And, uh, you know, this is the nature of political power. Um, if you lose your uh, authority, um, it doesn't matter how many uh, seats you have in the House of Commons. Basically, uh, you, uh, you your your moral authority is gone. Well, and this is the worst possible time for this to happen, as you said. I mean, you know, we, we're complaining here about our inflation, and I think rightly so. Uh, but we, you know, we're just under seven percent, I guess, uh, as far as the national numbers are concerned. But you were just over there, Peter, and it's more than double that in the UK, isn't it? Well, it's at least 10%, if not more, and uh, you could certainly see it there. And, you know, uh, the, the average person is not as well off there as here. The average level of prosperity in Britain is on the is lower than here. There are also great regional disparities. And the other problem is, of course, is that the United Kingdom is called that. You know, it's like, like Canada. You know, it's uh, we have provinces in Britain. They call them kingdoms. Uh, and specifically, we're talking about Wales, uh, Scotland, and Northern Ireland. And uh, there, they, they, they supported Brexit. Uh, sorry, they supported being in the European Union. They, they did not support Brexit. They did not want to leave. And uh, they saw their economic future in a very different way. So what Mrs. What Ms. Truss has done, she has actually placed in jeopardy the survival of the United Kingdom. Uh, Scotland is now calling for a referendum. Uh, Northern Ireland is unhappy. Even the Welsh uh, are, 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 uh, are, are, aren't very happy with all of this. So consequently, not only has she placed her in political uh, jeopardy herself, uh, her leadership, of course, is gone. She's placed in jeopardy the Conservative Party. It's way down on the polls, its ability to win an election but even the very future of her of her country, the United Kingdom. And uh, the chances now of it uh, uh, breaking up, I won't say they're, they're 100% or anything of this sort, but she has certainly made the possibility more likely. And of course, as Canadians, we can relate to this because, you know, we mm -hmm. have similar issues in our country and these things have to be balanced very carefully. Well, I know you were just over there a little while ago, but I mean, you know, Scottish Prime Minister Sturgeon has been, well, she, the, the party she represents is, is, for all intents and purposes, a separatist party. They wanted to secede uh, even before she became Prime Minister. Uh, they did have that one referendum, of course, uh, that uh, they barely lost by. But uh, she, is looking at this right now, since she's been Prime Minister, uh, I think we've gone through four British Prime Ministers. Uh, and that's... That's weakness. And when you see weakness like that, you want to take advantage of that. I, I got a feel, Peter, at some point in the near future, they're going to try to move forward with the referendum again. Well, that's it. Now, strictly speaking, you see, uh, uh, Scotland uh, technically can't have a referendum that counts unless the, the British Parliament in London actually agrees to it. 
But there's nothing to prevent uh, Miss Sturgeon up in Scotland from saying, well, fine, we'll just have our own private referendum. Yes, it won't have the same constitutional um, uh, force of, uh, that one sanctioned by London would have, but we could do this just to get the popular opinion. And if it goes ahead and wins, well, then that's going to put uh, the whole separatist movement in Scotland in a very, very strong position. And, uh, you know, uh, a referendum, well, what does a referendum mean? But uh, from, 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 the, uh, from the point of view of, 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 uh, of ensuring the, uh, the continuation of the United Kingdom, it'd be much better if a Scottish referendum was lost than it was won. Uh, we know the situation that happened here in Quebec, for instance, back in the 1995 referendum. It was lost by only, you know, a few, about 10 or 20,000 votes. But the fact of the matter was, it was lost. The no side won. And that just made all the difference in the world. And a small win, a small loss, or, you know, uh, as it turned out, was much better than, than, a, than, than, a, than a small yes vote would have been in keeping Canada together. So, yeah, no, I, 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 I think this is a story that's going to be, have to, will be watched very, very closely. I think it's a significant story, and uh, it's, it's hard to say how it will turn out. Well, the one thing I've always had a, a, an appreciation for with the uh, the Brits is uh, their their ability to to have a satirical look at things, and uh, and they love to gamble over there, as we well know. And you know, we <laughs> saw the, the the meme about you know that uh, the, the head of lettuce was going to last longer than than and it, and it did, as it turned out. But they've already started running book right now on who the next prime minister will be. And what I'm shocked about is I read some of the, uh, the stories from earlier this morning over there, Peter. Boris Johnson's name is coming up again. They wouldn't do that again, would they? Well, you really wonder, don't you? I, I Everybody's intrigued by this. And uh, it, it it's hard to say. The, the difficulty for the uh, Conservative Party in England is, is that when you look at some of the at their leadership, um, how can you put it? They're a pretty gray-looking crowd. Um, they don't seem to have anybody who has real leadership ability. I mean, I'm sure there are many very competent people in the conservative in the British Conservative Party, but are there any who can go out and are really? Um, create any type of enthusiasm in the electorate and say, yes, you know, we want to vote conservative. On top of this, in the public opinion polls, the conservative party is just dropped significantly behind labor. They're now uh, 15 or 20 points behind. It's, it's, it's really quite something. So they look at Boris Johnson and they say, well, if nothing else, this is a flamboyant, outgoing personality, his ability to uh, attract uh, an audience uh, to uh, be a um, uh, be a popular figure is good. Of, of course, that's balanced by the fact that many people consider him to be a sleaze uh, and uh, <laughs> and a liar. So what what are you going to do? Uh, they've got a choice between finding. Yeah, between choosing Boris Johnson, who's got the personality, but whose moral authority is gone, as opposed to uh, somebody who might be gray, but at least is going to be uh, honest. It, it's the old Sir John A. Macdonald thing. Remember what Sir John A. Macdonald said years and years ago? He said, you know, the country would rather have me drunk than my opponents sober. And uh, <laughs> I think that's going to be what the 
a British Tory party is going to have to make a choice between. Uh, and uh, But fr frankly, I think that they're toast regardless. I suspect that uh, the next, uh, they, in all likelihood, uh, they'll be voted out the next election and that Labour will come in. That would be well, my I got, I got a minute left. Let me ask you about that aspect, because that's part B to this question, Peter. Uh, the next federal election out there is not it's until uh, January 2025. That's when it's scheduled. There's, there's a huge demand right now to say, look, you can't just put somebody else in there and let's just roll Mary along for the next two and a half years. We want another general election. Uh, they don't have to call one, but there may be a moral imperative to do it anyway. Will, it, will they do that or just try to pretend, hey, nothing else to see here. Everything's fixed now. Well, that's a, that, there you have it, you know. And uh, if they... <laughs> Yes, you're quite right. This is their argument. They say that uh, we legally we have the right to stay in office uh, till 25. We don't have to call an election and therefore we're not going to call one. But then there's the question of moral authority. Um, well, we've seen situations in our country as well, too, with governments which have been very unpopular, but they've held right on to the very last moment and to hold an election. And uh, maybe they'll do the same thing as well, too. The difficulty is, is that there are so many major issues that need to be addressed in Britain. Uh, like us, they're having a big problems with their health care system. But it's the economy, which is a major concern. And we know we're going in for a difficult time. Uh, we're facing high inflation and economic slowdown, stagflation. And uh, governments that don't have at least a, a reasonable level of popular support are going to have even more difficulty gaining support for what they do. And I think that this is going to be the big problem, uh, to try to cope with all these major problems if you don't have some level of popular support and aren't considered to be competent. And, and that means that the ability of the state to function effectively is just undermined. Uh, well, I think this is a story we're going to have to watch very, very closely, or we haven't seen the end of it yet. And unfortunately, uh, it could take some very unhappy turns. Well, British politics, never boring. Uh, Peter, always a great pleasure to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for spending some time with us this morning. Great great chatting with you, uh, Bill, and uh, great chatting with your audience as well. Take care. That's uh, Professor Emeritus uh, Peter McNally from McGill University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.